Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark. Screens have been kind of going in and out here this morning, so hopefully they'll be sustained through the message. Uh, Mark chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 today, Mark 9, 1 through 13. Um, If you don't have a Bible, paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, as always, I think it would be very helpful if you have a Bible on your lap as we look at these passages in some detail, so that will be helpful to you, I believe. Uh, Friends, I wonder if you have ever seen something spectacular. Have you ever seen something spectacular? Maybe you have been to the Grand Canyon and just overwhelmed by that spectacular sight, or you've seen a, a child being born. That certainly would qualify as something spectacular. Maybe you've seen um, a sports competition, basketball, football game, where there was just this amazing comeback like you'd never seen before, and you called it spectacular. I think one thing that came to mind for me as I thought of something spectacular was this um, picture that I took. Um, Did I do that? This is what happens when you rely too much on PowerPoint slides. I need to show you this picture. Yeah, so this is a picture I took back in... uh, 1985, I was able to go to London Center with Ball State University and got to spend some time in Europe. And so this is the Swiss Alps, and uh, we are way, way up on this mountain, and um, so high up you can see we're really kind of above the clouds, or just lost in the clouds here in the Swiss Alps, and, you know, pictures never really do it justice. Um, I, uh, I guarantee you it was a spectacular sight. Um, Sometimes we call these spectacular kind of experiences mountaintop experiences, which in this case would be quite, quite literal, a mountaintop experience. Well, whatever it is that you've seen that you have thought was spectacular, um, I can assure you that it was not as spectacular as what Peter, James, and John saw in Mark chapter 9, this event that we call the transfiguration, another literal mountaintop experience. But what they saw was something beyond anything that we could conceive in terms of how spectacular it was. When we talk about something spectacular like this, what we're really talking about is beholding something glorious. And all of us want to behold something glorious. We're all drawn to glory. We're all glory chasers in some regard, there's a guy named Paul Tripp, who we quote from time to time here. He says this, admit it, you're a glory junkie. It's why you're attracted to the hugeness of the mountain range or the multi-hued splendor of the sunset. You're hardwired by your creator for a glory orientation. It's inescapable. It's in your genes. The transfiguration is a story of glory being revealed. And in this case, it is the glory of Jesus Christ. We are going through the book of Mark here at New Life, and 
As we have been looking at Jesus' life, we have been seeing Him mostly in His humanity. His glorious divinity has been kind of clothed or veiled behind His humanity or in His humanity. And here in the transfiguration, this glorious divinity is displayed, unveiled, even for a short time before the disciples. And that's what we're going to read about here this morning. So if you're able to stand, please do so. And we'll read Mark 9, 1 through 13, the story of the transfiguration, starting here with verse 9. And he said to them, that's Jesus, said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, before we get into this, I want to give a a quick shout out to one of my favorite kind of indie singer-songwriters, a guy named Sufjan Stevens. Not sure if any have heard of him. Sufjan, S-U-F-J-A-N, kind of an unusual name, but uh, Sufjan Stevens released an album in 2004 called Seven Swans, and on that album is a song called The Transfiguration, and it is highly faithful to the text that we are about to cover. Not something you'd expect to come out of the indie rock scene, but I would commend that song to you. I think it's very well done very faithful to the text, the transfiguration, Sufjan Stevens. Well, what do we learn here this morning about the glory of Jesus? That's what the disciples beheld, and there are three things that I want to show you today, and the first is the glory of who Jesus is, the glory of who Jesus is. You might remember last week we covered chapter 9, verse 1, for a brief time, I want to look at it just a moment here this morning. Um, 9 verse 1 has caused uh, some confusion for people, a lot of different interpretations. 
Uh, Many people say that this verse refers to the second coming when Jesus says, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The problem with um, interpreting this as a reference at least exclusively to the second coming is because Jesus clearly mentions those standing there not tasting death. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the ones to whom I'm speaking here will not die. They will survive, and they will see this kingdom of God after it has come with power. So, he's saying the disciples are going to see this. So, if this is a reference to the second coming, which of course hasn't happened yet, and we know the disciples have tasted death, they have passed away, that means they didn't see this. So, it would seem like this is not what Jesus is referring to, unless we want to say that Jesus was wrong, which some liberal scholars are willing to say. That's not what we're willing to say. So, this must refer to something else, and I think the answer is that Jesus is referring to something that the disciples are going to see, and one thing we know that they do see is Jesus go to a cross and Jesus be resurrected from the dead. And so, there's a reason why the transfiguration follows right on the heels of chapter 9, verse 1. That's the way Matthew does it, that's the way Luke does it in their Gospels. Because the transfiguration is giving a a preview, a glimpse into the future that the disciples are going to see. And this glimpse into the future is this coming glorious, majestic, spectacular resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Remember what has immediately preceded this. Remember how Jesus has been speaking to the disciples and saying things like, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me, and you're going to have to deny yourself, and I am a Savior who is going to suffer, and you're going to follow in my steps. I mean, that's kind of a downer message, isn't it? I mean, I think if you heard Jesus say that, you would maybe be a a little bit distraught, perhaps. And so, what Jesus wants to do here is He wants to encourage the disciples. He wants to give them a glimpse of the future a glorious future promise so that they can persevere persevere through the upcoming requirements upon them to be disciples who suffer. A glimpse into the future. I remember when I was uh, with my family, we would always go to Florida on uh, Christmas holiday, and I remember it was Christmas Eve, and I uh, got up, had to go to the restroom, so I, I got up in the middle of the night, it's Christmas Eve, and I'm thinking... I'm going to take a peek into the room and see what's in there. And so I walked down the hall and, and kind of glimpsed over into the living room. And, you know, my mom, God bless her, was just great on Christmas every year. She was just so generous and provided so many gifts for us. And so when I looked into that room, talk about glory. You know, I mean, there were just all kinds of gifts just all over the place, all wrapped under the tree And it was just such an exciting thing that I remember it to this day, just getting a a glimpse into the future, that is, what was coming the next morning. That's what Jesus is doing here. He wants to give the disciples this, this glimpse into the future to help them to persevere. There's a lesson here for us, friends. Life is not easy. We run into all kinds of difficulties and setbacks and sorrows, and in order for us to be able to persevere for those 
through those things, we have to keep in mind the glimpse of the future that is promised to us in the gospel, the glory that is ours in the gospel. And so that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples. So here's what happens. Verse 2, we see Peter, James, and John are taken by Jesus up on this high mountain. Now, of course, there are 12 disciples, but Jesus has chosen three here. This is kind of Jesus' inner circle, we might say, the ones with whom Jesus is closest, and he takes them up on this mountain. The mountain is not named. Most commentators think this was probably Mount Hermon, which would have been closer to the place where Peter made his confession of Christ. And on this mountain, we notice at the end of verse 2 that Jesus was transfigured. Now, that word is not used a lot in the New Testament. The the Greek is actually metamorphothē, which is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. So, you probably learned in biology class about caterpillars transformed into the butterfly. There's a metamorphosis that takes place. That word comes from the Greek word that is used right here at the end of verse 2. Jesus here before the eyes of these three disciples is radically changed. He's transfigured. There is something about his visible outward appearance before their eyes that is now being displayed to them that matches his nature as the Word made flesh, the Son of God, God in human form. And they're getting to see this, just as our call to worship said from Hebrews 1, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's something that is hidden, for the most part, in Jesus' humanity as we've been reading the Gospels. But again, Jesus is just lifting the veil and letting this light shine forth for the disciples to behold. So much so that even his clothes become so bright, brighter than anyone could bleach them. This Again, this is a spectacular sight. This is like nothing that you or I have ever experienced. What a blessing for Peter, James, and John. So Jesus transfigured, and then we go on and we see, verse 4, that um, two men kind of show up, Elijah and Moses, and there they are having a conversation with Jesus. Now, wouldn't you love to have a hot mic on that conversation? (laughs) Elijah and Moses and Jesus. Luke would give us a little more details, something to suggest that they were probably talking about Jesus' death on the cross in Jerusalem. Uh, But more things were talked about there. The disciples see this. We might ask the question, why Elijah and Moses? Why these two? There's a lot of people in the Bible. Why Elijah and Moses? Well, the life of Elijah described in 1 Kings. We know Elijah to be one of, if not the greatest prophet from the Old Testament. And, of course, we know the story of Moses described in the book of Exodus, and he is the great lawgiver. On Mount Sinai, God gave him the Ten Commandments and the law, and through Moses, the law came to God's people. Uh, Interesting also that both Elijah and Moses had their own mountaintop experiences. You might remember Elijah on Mount Horeb and Moses on Mount Sinai. But here we have a representative 
of the prophets, Elijah, and of the law, Moses. When, if you look at the way Jesus describes this in Matthew 5, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus seems to divide the Old Testament into these two sections, law and prophet, and that's what Elijah and Moses represent. What we have here are basically like the two all-stars of the Old Testament, the two supreme figures of the Old Testament. If we were thinking of the NBA, this would be like being before LeBron James and Michael Jordan. Or if we're thinking about American history, this is like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln appearing before us. You know, the, the two major significant figures, Elijah and Moses in this case. The reason I'm stressing all this is because I don't want us to miss what, what's going on here. We, we can't overestimate the importance of Elijah and Moses, and Moses. And yet, who is the one who is shining brightly here? It's not Elijah, and it's not Moses. In fact, when we get to the end of the event, they disappear. And all that's left is Jesus. Do you see what the point is here? It's that as great as Moses and Elijah are, they don't stand a chance with Jesus. That their entire purpose is to simply draw attention to Jesus, to point people's attention to Him, not to them. Hebrews 3 says that Jesus is greater than Moses in the same way that the builder of the house is greater than the house. Anytime you read the Old Testament, friends, you need to always be looking for how it points forward to Jesus. That's the point here. As great as Elijah and Moses are, they are diminished before the glory of Jesus here. Ultimate glory is found not in just obeying all of the commands of the Old Testament. Ultimate glory is found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. It's not found in fame. It's not found in beauty. It's not found in wealth. It's found in knowing Jesus. I mean, as wonderful it was for me to behold the glory of the Swiss Alps, how much more glorious is it to know the one who made the Swiss Alps? And that's what we have in our relationship with Jesus. Colossians says it like this, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. That's who Jesus is. And that's what Mark wants to tell us here to begin with. But the second thing to consider is the glory of what Jesus says. So, after this or in the middle of this spectacular sight, we notice how the disciples respond. At the end of verse 6, they are terrified. So, very similar to Isaiah in the presence of the holiness of God. Isaiah was undone, and the disciples here are also undone. They're, they're terrified. You might remember that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he asked to see God's glory and God said, no one can see my face and live. To come into my presence is to risk your life, is what God said to Moses. 
The disciples certainly would have been familiar with that passage. I think they knew they were in the presence of God here. They might have been thinking, it's time to die. Because here we are in the presence of the holiness and glory of God. So that explains why Peter doesn't know really what to say, it says. Peter, you know, the more impetuous, he's always got to act, he's always got to say something. So he doesn't know what to say, it says in verse 6. Um, but he does say something, that's in verse 5. He says, Rabbi, it's good we're here. Yeah, talk about the most obvious statement to make, you know. Ah, it's, this is good. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That word for tent is the word for tabernacle. So it could be that what Peter was thinking is, let's set up a, a place of worship for Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's what he had in mind. We don't know. He doesn't get an answer because there's an interruption. Verse 7, suddenly this cloud forms or this cloud comes and it overshadows them and a voice comes from the cloud. Now when I say the cloud, I don't mean the internet storage unit cloud, okay? I mean, that's probably where a lot of our minds go when we hear that word, the cloud. Um, clouds actually have significance in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament. Exodus 13, the cloud went before Israel in the wilderness. Exodus 34, the cloud appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. Exodus 40, a cloud filled the tabernacle once it was built and constructed. In other words, the cloud always represents God's presence. And so now we have a voice from the cloud. In other words, this is the voice of God. God is speaking here. You remember last time we heard a voice coming from heaven? Do you remember this? It was back in Mark chapter 1. Jesus' baptism. And a voice came out of heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This incident is very similar to that. What I've been telling you is there are two halves to the book of Mark, right? First half of Mark is Jesus' identity. Second half of Mark is Jesus' mission. Well, these, this, this voice from the sky is kind of marking those two halves. When, Jesus, or when God spoke from the heavens during Jesus' baptism, it was an inauguration of Jesus' ministry on earth, His teaching and healing ministry. But here we are in the middle of Mark, about ready to move into the second half of Mark, Jesus' mission, and so once again we hear a voice from heaven inaugurating now, not Jesus' identity, but His mission to go to the cross in Jerusalem. And that's the whole rest of this book of Mark is where we're going to be focusing our attention. So, here's the voice. What does it say? Let's look. Verse 7. The voice says this. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. A little different than chapter 1. In chapter 1, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Here, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Are, are you listening to Jesus? This is the clear command from God. Listen to Jesus. <clears throat> Do you remember that, that television ad? You have to be a certain age to remember this. E.F. Hutton, do you remember that ad where there's people, for instance, in a restaurant, and they're all talking, and there's this hustle and bustle in the restaurant, a lot of noise, and these two guys are having a conversation, and the one guy says, well, my broker says this or that. 
uh, what does your broker say? And the guy responds and says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, <laughs> just like that, the place gets completely quiet. The place gets completely quiet, and everybody kind of leans in. All around the restaurant, they're all bending their ear because they want to know what E.F. Hutton has to say. You ought to know what Jesus Christ has to say. That ought to be your chief concern. Because friends, there are all kinds of voices in this world clamoring for your attention. Blogs, podcasts, commentators, pundits, YouTube influencers, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Bill Maher, Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey, Fox News, CNN, on and on we could go. So many voices talking at you, demanding your attention, telling you what they think of the world, what is right, what is wrong. And God speaks from the clouds and says, this is my son, listen to him. I mean, who do, you, who do you long for? Who do you go at? Who are you listening to first? Who do you go to first when you want to make a decision, when you want to know how to figure something out? Are you listening to Jesus? Now, you might say, well, how do I, how do, I do that? I don't hear voices speaking from clouds to me. So, how do I listen to Jesus? There's a fascinating passage here in 2 Peter. So, this is the same Peter who was on Mount uh, the mountain of the transfiguration. St. Peter, who wrote this later, and, and he says this, he's talking about this experience. In Second Peter, he's talking about the transfiguration. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, speaking of Jesus, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You see what he's saying? We heard this voice on the mountain, but now we have a prophetic word that is more confirmed than the voice from the cloud, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He goes on in verses 20 and 21 to talk about Scripture. I think what Peter is, is saying here is that the word more fully conformed than any voice you might hear out of the sky are the Scriptures. That's how you can listen to Jesus. That's how you hear Him. In the Word, in the Scriptures, in the Bible, looking to what Jesus says. Are you listening to Him? Well, one other thing that we see is the glory of what Jesus has done the glory of what Jesus has done. The spectacular, the spectacular scene is over. As I said, Moses and Elijah vanish. And so starting here um, in verse 9, we see that they're coming down the mountain. And Jesus gives them a charge. He tells them not to tell anyone. So here we have this again. Jesus just says this over and over again, telling his disciples not to tell anybody, telling the ones that he heals not to tell anyone. Why is he saying this here? Notice that here he says, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. So I'm pretty sure this is the first time that when Jesus 
charges people not to say anything. He gives kind of a time limit on it. Well, when Jesus is risen from the dead, then you can start telling people. Probably what Jesus has in mind here is the fact that there is a lack of understanding that the disciples have about what they have just witnessed until the resurrection happens. Do you remember the, 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 the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 when Jesus is walking with his disciples and it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures? And it goes on and it says that the Christ must suffer and on the third day be raised. So there was a certain clarity of understanding that the disciples would be given after the resurrection. And so Jesus is kind of pausing them from talking about it too much until that time. And so the disciples hear this, so we see in verse 10, they keep the matter to themselves, and they start questioning what the rising of the dead must mean. So disciples here are, are a little confused, um, as often happens when, when we look at scriptural language like this and looking at these last few verses, you might be confused. I know I was confused when I started studying this passage. I'm going to do my best to explain it to you here. The disciples are confused, and so they ask Jesus a question, <clears throat> and, and here's where the question is coming from. In the Jewish mindset, the resurrection was known to be or believed to be the very end of all things, the end of the world. When the resurrection happens, the world is going to end. And so that's what these disciples are thinking when Jesus talks about the resurrection. But the disciples also know from the scriptures and from what the scribes have been saying, Malachi 4.5, where the prophet says, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord is the, the last day, the, the end of the world. And so as the disciples are hearing about this resurrection, what they're thinking in their minds is, well, if the resurrection is about to happen, that means there's the end of the world, but we haven't seen Elijah come. So when is that going to happen? And so that's why they say in verse 11, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That's, that's their confusion. If the resurrection is about to happen, I haven't seen Elijah yet, so when's he coming? If this is all about to end... He's got to come sometime. So, how does Jesus answer? Verse 12, Jesus affirms. He says, yes, Elijah does come first. So, that is going to happen, affirming scribes, affirming Malachi. But then Jesus poses a question to them. And he says, at the same time, though, it is written that the Son of Man is going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So basically he's saying, yeah, you guys want to know when Elijah is coming, but what I want to know is when do you guys think the suffering's going to come? I mean, because that's written also. How come you're not figuring that into your timeline? And so Jesus is probably thinking of a passage like Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, referring to the suffering servant, the Messiah, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. See, the disciples, they don't have a category for a suffering Messiah, right? We've seen that. That's just off their radar. And that's revealed here in the fact that they're concerned about Elijah, but they're not concerned about when this suffering is going to take place. And then, verse 13, 
um, Jesus kind of drops the bomb on him and says, I tell you, Elijah has actually already come. (laughs) And so you can imagine how surprised they must have been to hear that. And so what in the world does Jesus mean by that? It's one of the values of having more than just one gospel, because some of the other gospel writers provide details that others don't. And if we look at Matthew, what he tells us in his description of the transfiguration is this. This is Jesus' words, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Now, look at this. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Elijah is fulfilled in John the Baptist. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. Elijah wasn't meant to literally come back. It was the spirit of Elijah as a prophet who came back in the prophet John the Baptist. So here's the bottom line. Here's what I think Jesus is saying to sum up here. He's saying, yeah, you know, John the Baptist came and he heralded the coming of the Messiah. But John the Baptist also suffered. And by doing that, he heralded the suffering of the Messiah. And the, the, the disciples are not getting that. John the Baptist, remember, his head was, was cut off. He was executed. He suffered. And the disciples have no category for that. They have eyes to see Elijah coming. They're looking for that. They don't have eyes to see a suffering Savior. And Jesus is seeking to explain this to them and get them to open their eyes to see this. Bottom line, again, like last week, is that the cross is something that cannot be avoided. It is absolutely necessary. There is no other way than for the Messiah to die. It's the only way sins can be paid for. It's the only way God's wrath can be satisfied. It's the only way that souls can be saved. We have this temptation particularly as Americans who live fairly comfortable, luxurious lives. We have this temptation to want to flee from suffering at every moment, and even sometimes to wonder if we are suffering, that maybe this is God getting some kind of revenge on me. But what the Scriptures repeatedly teach us is that there is a component of suffering that is the path of all those who follow the suffering servant. At the heart of the Christian faith is the glorious resurrection previewed here in the transfiguration. But at the same time, there is no glory without suffering, there is no crown without a cross, and there is no life without death. But the good thing about this, the good news, friends, is that in this passion of Jesus to give up His life for sinners, the most spectacular thing has occurred. And that is the people like you and me can have the assurance that all of our sins are washed away and can have the assurance of eternal life, can have the assurance of our resurrected bodies one day, can have the assurance that one day we will behold the glory of Jesus face to face. That's the promised future for us. And that's what you have to hang on to as you walk through the difficulties and challenges and sorrows of your life. The suffering is temporary. The glory is eternal, and it's coming for you. 
and for me. So leave you with the words of Matthew Henry, who said it like this. Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are your healings, his agonies your repose, his conflicts your conquests, his groans your songs, his pain your ease, his shame your glory, his death your life, his sufferings your salvation. Lord, we thank you for giving us a glimpse of glory on the pages of Scripture here in this description of the transfiguration. Oh Lord, I pray that in the midst of the struggles of our lives, we would not take our eyes off the promised glory that is ours. Father, I pray that this passage would enable us all to persevere through the troubles that we endure, but also persevere in simply trusting You and declaring You as Savior and Lord. So thank you for speaking to us through this passage in Jesus' name. Amen.